everybody. I hope you're all having a wonderful day or night, whatever time it happens to be, wherever you are in the world. My name is Jay, and welcome to episode three of History's Hangnails, the podcast where we deep dive on bizarre events and mysteries from our past. Today's episode takes us back to 1940 and the advent of the Chicano movement, or El Movimiento, a social and political movement in the United States inspired by prior acts of resistance among people of Mexican descent, especially in the 1940s and 1950s, and the Black Power Movement from 1966 into the 80s. It was especially centered on the Pachuchos, male members of a counterculture that arose in El Paso in the late 1930s, associated with zoot suit fashion, jump blues, jazz and swing music, a distinct dialect known as Carlo, and the self-empowerment in rejecting assimilation into Anglo-American society. All involved in the Chicano movement would work to embrace their own identity and worldview, combating structural racism, encouraging cultural revitalization, and achieving community empowerment. Prior to this time, the word Chicano had been used as a term of derision, adopted by some pachuchos as an expression of defiance to Anglo-American society. With the rise of Chicanismo, the cultural consciousness behind the movement, this instead became a reclaimed term in the 1960s and 1970s, used to express political autonomy, ethnic and cultural solidarity, and pride in being of indigenous descent. As mentioned, the Chicano movement was influenced by and entwined with the Black Power movement, and both held similar objectives of community empowerment and liberation, while also calling for black-brown unity, a racial political ideology which initially developed among black scholars, writers, and activists. They pushed for global activist associations between various groups of indigenous peoples to unify against white supremacy, colonialism, capitalism, and in some cases, European conceptualizations of masculinity which were recognized as interrelated in maintaining white privilege and power over people of color. Leaders such as Cesar Chavez, Reyes Tiarina, and Rodolfo Gonzalez learned strategies of resistance and worked with leaders of the Black Power movement. Chicano organizations like the Brown Berets and Mexican American Youth Organization, or MAYO, were heavily influenced by the political agenda of black activist organizations such as the Black Panthers, a Marxist-Leninist and Black Power political group founded by students Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton in October 1966. Chicano political demonstrations, such as the East LA walkouts, a series of protests during 1968 by Chicano students against unequal conditions in Los Angeles Unified School District high schools, and the Chicano Moratorium, a movement of Chicano anti-war activists opposing the Vietnam War, occurred in collaboration with black students and activists. The Chicano movement experienced heavy state surveillance, infiltration, and repression from US government informants and agent provocateurs through organized activities such as COINTELPRO, a series of covert and illegal projects actively conducted by the FBI aimed at discrediting and disrupting domestic American political groups. Movement leaders such as Rosario Munoz were ousted from their positions by government agents, organizations such as Mayo and the Brown Berets were infiltrated, and political demonstrations such as the Chicano Moratorium became sites of police brutality, leading to the decline of the movement 
by the mid-1970s. Their major focus on masculinity also marginalized the female population, or Chicanas as they were known, causing division and further decline. With the brief history of the Chicano movement fresh in your minds, we now turn to the focus of this episode. And while there is not much factual information known about this figure, in comparison with previous episodes at least, the stories that emerged about his life and those who shared it speak volumes. A man who, for all intents and purposes, could very well be described as a literary device, a figment of the writing, too weird to live and too rare to die. This is the brief, wild, and mysterious tale of Oscar Zeta Acosta Fierro. Oscar Acosta was a Mexican-American attorney, politician, novelist, and activist in the Chicano movement. He was most well-known for his novels Autobiography of a Brown Buffalo from 1972 and The Revolt of the Cockroach People from 1973, as well as his friendship and escapades with American author Hunter S. Thompson, who we will eventually cover in a later episode of the podcast. Thompson even characterized Acosta as heavyweight Samoan attorney Dr. Gonzo in his 1971 novel Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, among other appearances in Hunter's works. Acosta was born in El Paso, Texas, April 8, 1935, to Manuel and Juanita Acosta, who were themselves from Mexico and El Paso, respectively. He had an older brother, Roberto, born in 1934, but was the second of three siblings to survive childhood. After the family moved to California, the brothers were raised in the small rural community of Riverbank in San Joaquin Valley near Modesto, and Manuel was drafted during World War II. After he finished high school, Acosta joined the US Air Force. He was eventually discharged and worked his way through Modesto Junior College, moving on to San Francisco State University to study creative writing and becoming the first member of his family to obtain a college education. He also attended night classes at San Francisco Law School and passed the state bar exam in 1966. In 1967, Acosta began working locally as an anti-poverty attorney for the East Oakland Legal Aid Society, providing free legal aid to those in need. In 1968, he moved to East LA and joined the Chicano movement as an activist attorney, defending Chicano activist groups. He represented the Chicano 13 of the East LA walkouts, members of the Brown Berets, Rodolfo Gonzalez, and other residents of the East LA Barrio. Known for wearing loud ties and carrying a flower attaché case showing off a Chicano power sticker, Acosta's controversial defense tactics also earned him the ire of the LA Police Department, who often followed and harassed him. In 1970, he ran for sheriff of LA County against Peter J. Pitches, the 28th sheriff of LA County from 1958 to 1981, and received more than 100,000 votes. During the campaign, Acosta was jailed for two days for contempt of court, known as the crime of being disobedient or disrespectful toward a court of law and its officers. He vowed that, if elected, he would do away with the sheriff's department in its current form. Acosta lost to Pitches's 1.3 million votes, but beat Everett Holliday, the Monterey Park chief of police at the time. Oscar Acosta met Hunter S. Thompson in the summer of 1967. 
1971, Thompson wrote an article on Acosta and the injustice in the barrios of East LA, including the death of Salazar, titled Strange Rumblings in Aztlan. While working on the article, Thompson and Acosta decided that a trip to Las Vegas, Nevada was in order, so they could freely discuss the subject matter of the article away from any police supervision. This was the trip that eventually inspired the novel Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. The legal department of the publisher of Fear and Loathing said the book could not be published without clearance by Acosta, as references to him were recognisable. Acosta initially refused the clearance, saying that he was insulted by Thompson's alteration of his race. He understood, however, that inserting his real name and race would necessitate extensive rewriting and delay the publication of the book. So, he promised clearance, provided that his name and picture would appear in the dust jacket. Scholar David S. Wills argued that it was Acosta who pushed Thompson to pursue the theme of the American dream, and indeed provided much of the plot of the novel throughout his actions in Las Vegas. He asserts that this is likely the reason why Acosta felt so aggrieved, citing various letters and audio recordings of the two men. Acosta even complained to one of Thompson's editors, stating, Hunter has stolen my soul. He has taken my best lines, and he has used me. Though the pair did attempt to work together one last time, their relationship was strained by the dispute, and it never fully recovered. In May 1974, Oscar Acosta disappeared while traveling in Mazatlan, Sinaloa, in Mexico. His son, Marco Acosta, believes that he was the last person to talk to his father. Oscar telephoned his son from Mazatlan, telling him that he was about to board a boat full of white snow. Marco is later quoted in reference to his father's disappearance. The body was never found, but we surmise that probably, knowing the people he was involved with, he ended up mouthing off, getting into a fight, and getting killed. According to Hunter S. Thompson, Acosta was a powerful attorney and spokesman, but suffered from a heavy addiction to amphetamines and a predilection toward LSD. He believed him to have been murdered by drug dealers or possibly the victim of a political assassination. Others have speculated over the years that Acosta may have overdosed or suffered a nervous breakdown during his final trip. And that is all we really know of Oscar Zeta Acosta. I wanted to include the information about the Chicano movement at the beginning of the episode to provide a basis for the story and give you all an idea of the socio-political climate he worked within. But now, to finish out the episode, what one could call an appetizer for when I eventually get around to covering the writer himself, I will read Oscar Acosta's obituary, as written by Hunter S. Thompson. There are some words in the article of a racial nature, seemingly to add the necessary imagery to the writing that I will not repeat here, though I do highly recommend you read the article for yourself, as well as Thompson's other works. Allow me to present The Banshee Screams for Buffalo Meat, Requiem for a Crazed Heavyweight, an unfinished memoir on the life and doom of Oscar Zeta Acosta. First and last of the savage brown buffaloes, he 
He crawled with lepers and lawyers, but he was tall on his own hind legs when he walked at night with the king. The following memoir by Dr. Thompson is the painful result of a nine-week struggle between management and the author regarding the style, tone, length, payment, etc., but mainly the subject matter of the National Affairs Desk's contribution to this star-crossed 10th anniversary issue. And in at least momentary fairness to the management, we should note that the term star-crossed is Dr. Thompson's, as are all other harsh judgments he was finally compelled to submit. We work in the dark. We do what we can. Some poet who never met Werner Erhard said that. But so what? What began as a sort of riptide commentary on the meaning of the 60s soon turned into a wild and hydra-headed screed on truth, vengeance, journalism, and the meaning, such as it is, of Jimmy Carter. But none of these things could be made to fit in the space we had available. So we were finally forced to compromise with the Doc and his people, who had, all along, favoured a long, dangerous, and very costly piece titled The Search for the Brown Buffalo. It was Dr. Thompson's idea to have Rolling Stone finance this open-ended search for one of his friends who had disappeared under mean and mysterious circumstances in the late months of 1974 or perhaps the early months of 1975. The brown buffalo was the nom de plume of the Chicano attorney from East LA who gained international notoriety as the brutal and relentless 300-pound Samoan attorney in Thompson's book Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. The Editors I walk in the night rain until the dawn of the new day. I had devised the plan, straightened out the philosophy, and set up the organization. When I have the one million brown buffaloes on my side, I will present the demands for a new nation to both the US government and the United Nations. And then I'll split and write the book. I have no desire to be a politician. I don't want to lead anyone. I have no practical ego. I am not ambitious. I merely want to do what is right. Once in every century, there comes a man who is chosen to speak for his people. Moses, Mao, and Martin are examples. Who's to say that I am not such a man? In this day and age, the man for all seasons needs many voices. Perhaps that is why the gods have sent me into Riverbank, Panama, San Francisco, Alpine, and Juarez. Perhaps that is why I've been taught so many trades. Who will deny that I am unique? Oscar Acosta, the autobiography of a brown buffalo. Well, not me, old sport. Wherever you are, and in whatever shape, dead or alive, or even both, eh? There's one thing they can't take away from you, which is lucky, I think, for the rest of us. Because, and yeah, let's face it, Oscar, you were not real light on your feet in this world. And you were too goddamn heavy for most of the boats you jumped into. One of the great regrets of my life is that I was never able to introduce you to my old football buddy, Richard Nixon. 
the main thing he feared in this life, even worse than queers and Jews and mutants, was people who might run amok. He called them loose cannons on the deck, and he wanted to put them all to sleep. That's one graveyard we never even checked, Oscar. But why not? If your classic doomed style of paranoia had any validity at all, you must understand that it was not just Richard Nixon who was out to get you, but all the people who thought like Nixon and all the judges and US attorneys he appointed in those weird years. Were there any of Nixon's friends among all those superior court judges you subpoenaed and mocked and humiliated when you were trying to bust the grand jury selection system in LA? How many of those brown beret bodyguards you called brothers were deep cover ops or informants? I recall being seriously worried about that when we were working on that story about the killing of Chicano journalist Ruben Salazar by an LA County Sheriff's deputy. How many of those bomb-throwing, trigger-happy freaks who slept on mattresses in your apartment were talking to the sheriff on a chilly hall payphone every morning? Or maybe the judges who kept jailing you for contempt of court when they didn't have anything else? Yeah, and so much for the paranoid 60s. It's time to end this bent seance, or almost closing time anyway. But before we get back to raw facts and rude lawyer's humor, I want to make sure that at least one record will show that I tried and totally failed for at least five years to convince my allegedly erstwhile Samoan attorney, Oscar Zeta Acosta, that there was no such thing as paranoia. At least not in that cultural and political war zone called East LA in the late 1960s and especially not for an aggressively radical Chicano lawyer who thought he could stay up all night, every night, eating acid and throwing Molotov cocktails with the same people he was going to have to represent in a downtown courtroom the next morning. There were times, all too often I felt, when Oscar would show up in front of the courthouse at nine in the morning with a stench of fresh gasoline on his hands and a green crust of charred soap flakes on the toes of his $300 snakeskin cowboy boots. He would pause outside the courtroom just long enough to give the TV press five minutes of crazed rhetoric for the evening news, then he would shepherd his equally crazed clients into the courtroom for their daily war circus with the judge. When you get into bear baiting on that level, paranoia is just another word for ignorance. They really are out to get you. The odds on his being dragged off to jail for contempt were about 50-50 on any given day, which meant he was always in danger of being seized and booked with a pocket full of bennies or black beauties at the property desk. After several narrow escapes, he decided that it was necessary to work in the courtroom as part of a three-man defense team. One of his associates was usually a well-dressed, well-mannered young Chicano whose only job was to carry at least 100 milligrams of pure speed at all times and feed Oscar whenever he signaled. The other was not so well-dressed or mannered. His job was to stay alert and be one step ahead of the bailiffs when they made a move on Oscar, at which point he would reach out and grab any pills, powders, shivs, or other evidence he was handed, then sprint like a human bazooka for the nearest exit. 
This strategy worked so well for almost two years that Oscar and his people finally got careless. They had survived another long day in court on felony arson charges, this time for trying to burn down the Biltmore Hotel during a speech by then Governor Ronald Reagan. And they were driving back home to Oscar's headquarters pad in the barrio and maybe running 60 or 65 in a 50 mph speed zone, Oscar later admitted, when they were suddenly jammed to a stop by two LAPD cruisers. They acted like we just robbed a bank, said Frank, looking right down the barrel of a shotgun. They made us all lie face down on the street, and then they searched the car and, yes, that's when they found the drugs. 20 or 30 white pills that the police quickly identified as illegal amphetamine tablets belonging to attorney Oscar Acosta. The fat Mexican for all seasons was jailed once again, this time on what the press call a high-speed drug bust. Oscar called a press conference in jail and accused the cops of planting him, but not even his bodyguards believed him until long after the attendant publicity had done them all so much damage that the whole brown power movement was effectively stalled, splintered, and discredited by the time all charges both arson and drugs were either dropped or reduced to small print on the back of the blotter. I am not even sure myself how the cases were finally disposed of. Not long after the high-speed drug bust, as I recall, two of his friends were charged with murder one for allegedly killing a smack dealer in the barrio, and I think Oscar finally copped on the drug charge and pled guilty to something like possession of ugly pills in a public place. But by that time, his deal had already gone down. None of the respectable Chicano poles in East LA had ever liked him anyway, and that high-speed drug bust was all they needed to publicly denounce everything left of Huevos Rancheros and start calling themselves Mexican-American again. The trial of the Biltmore Five was no longer a do-or-die cause for La Raza, but a shameful crime that a handful of radical dope fiends had brought down on the whole community. The mood on Whittier Boulevard turned sour overnight, and the sight of a brown beret was suddenly as rare as a cash client for Oscar Zeta Acosta, the ex-Chicano lawyer. The entire ex-Chicano political community went as public as possible to make sure that the rest of the city understood that they had known all along that this dope addict Rata, who had somehow been one of their most articulate and certainly their most radical, popular, and politically aggressive spokesmen for almost two years, was really just a self-seeking publicity dope freak who couldn't even run a bar tab at the Silver Dollar Cafe, much less rally friends or a following. There was no mention in the Mexican-American press about Acosta's surprisingly popular campaign for Sheriff of LA County a year earlier, which had made him a minor hero among politically hip Chicanos all over the city. No more of that dilly-dong bullshit on Whittier Boulevard. Oscar's drug bust was still alive on the evening news when he was evicted from his apartment on three days' notice and his car was either stolen or towed away from its customary parking place on the street in front of his driveway. His offer to defend his two friends on what he later assured me were absolutely valid charges of first-degree murder were publicly rejected. Not even for free, they said. A dope-addled clown was worse than no lawyer at all. It was dumb gun thinking 
but Oscar was in no mood to offer his help more than once. So he beat a strategic retreat to Mazatlan, which he called his other home, to lick his wounds and start writing the great Chicano novel. It was the end of an era. The fireball Chicano lawyer was on his way to becoming a half-successful writer, a cult figure of sorts, then a fugitive, a freak, and finally, either a permanently missing person or an undiscovered corpse. Oscar's fate is still a mystery, but every time his case seems to be finally closed, something happens to bring him back to life. And one of them just happened again, but it came in a blizzard of chaos that caused a serious time warp in my thinking. My nerves are still too jangled for the moment to do anything but lay back and let it blow over. This was a shorter episode than I would normally aim for, but in addition to there not being much reliable information about Oscar Acosta, I'm also still using the free account for my Buzzsprout RSS feed, which means I only had 43 minutes left of upload allowance for the month, and I wanted to put out a smaller episode to fill that space more comfortably. Don't forget, I stream four days a week over at twitch.tv slash jbawocky. You can also show your support and help out the podcast by heading to patreon.com slash jbawocky and signing up for one of the three member tiers listed. Make sure to keep a weather eye out for announcements regarding future episodes. At HangnailPod is the official Twitter for the podcast, and all announcements will appear there. Thank you all for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I'll see you next time.